ocean breeze, tropical beach, pina colada. You can buy an air freshener to make your car smell like you're in an oceanside paradise. Or better yet, you can point your car toward Daytona Beach and come experience the real thing. Visit DaytonaBeach.com to discover all there is to see, do, and enjoy along the world's most famous beach. Daytona Beach, Florida. Beach on. Hip-hop is a product of black people. It's a product of black song and celebration. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution presents Hip-hop's most pulled elements are pulled from the South. A Southern hip-hop story. We always go back to that moment of the Source Awards. Everybody wants your rhythm, but they don't want your blues. The biggest names in hip-hop. Atlanta is still the mecca for hip-hop. 50 years. No one can deny. One film. The power of the South now. The South got something to say. Streaming now at AJC.com slash hip-hop. We're listening to Breakdown, Railroad Justice in a Railroad Town, a special podcast by the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Visit our website, AJCBreakdown.com, for photos, video, and additional background. Previously on Breakdown. I mean, we've got this woman who's been killed, and everybody liked her, and she didn't do anything to put herself in harm's way. So if you've got information on that, You know, I'm not going to make any promises about what I'll do with your case, but I'll take it into consideration. We played the video for Ms. Hankins in the firm library, and after about two or three minutes, Ms. Hankins just started shaking her head in disbelief. And Jan turns to me and says, I have never seen this before. He said he didn't think it was just the Chapman. He said that to you? He did, because we were looking at the person. This person was running. This person had no cane. Welcome to Episode 6. We've spent hours talking about the multiple breakdowns in the justice system in the murder case against Justin Chapman. And we've also focused on some pretty jarring conflicts between the testimony presented at trial against him and what's since been uncovered. But what I haven't done is tell you whether Justin Chapman actually did it or didn't do it. That's because I don't know. His defense team strongly believes in his innocence. The police and prosecutors who sent him to prison just as strongly believe he's guilty. A few weeks ago, I sat down with Keith Presnell, the police chief in Bremen. He became chief shortly before the fire that started this case. Presnell didn't want to talk on tape, but he said he is still confident that the right person, Chapman, was accused of the crime. Murder cases are rare in Bremen, and the chief said his staff's investigation went by the book all the way. Investigators chased down every lead. In the end, he said, all the facts in the case led back to Justin Chapman. One thing reporters like me always face is this. The cops know a lot more than we do. They have access to all the witnesses. They have the power to summon people to the police station and then get to watch their eyes and body language as they answer questions. They also have all the evidence. They see and hear things we will never see or hear. But does that mean they always get it right? Of course not. But it does mean that often we only know a fraction of what they know. So let's start with one of the cornerstones of the prosecution's case, that Chapman had the means and opportunity to commit this crime. First, there's the alibi. Members of Chapman's family testified that he was with them when the fire broke out miles away from the scene of the crime. 
You may remember that Chapman and his family left their duplex about 2 a.m. on the night the fire broke out. They went to stay with friends, Stephen and Brandy Hughes. The Hughes lived in a trailer just outside of Bremen. Now, the fire broke out around 3 a.m. or shortly thereafter. Police got the first 911 call at 3.19 a.m. Chapman's wife and son both testified that Chapman was at the Hughes trailer at that time. The prosecutor argued, however, that Chapman would have had enough time to leave the Hughes trailer, drive back to his house, set the fire, and then return to the trailer. There was no physical evidence suggesting that he did this, and there was one rather questionable witness who put Chapman near the scene of the crime. Even so, the jury simply didn't buy Chapman's alibi as supplied by his family. In fact, they apparently didn't even think much about it at all. They came back with a guilty verdict in just 40 minutes. So could it have happened the way the prosecution said? Time for a road trip. In the popular serial podcast, Sarah Koenig drove from Adnan Syed's school to the Best Buy in Baltimore. She wanted to see whether it could be done in the amount of time the police claimed. Did the police's timeline actually fit? I found that I was asking myself a very similar question in the Chapman case. Say Chapman did what the cops said, left the used trailer, drove home, set his house on fire, and then drove back to the trailer. Was that possible given the cops' time frame? I decided to drive it myself and see. If you look at our map on ajcbreakdown.com, you'll see where the used trailer was. This is where I began. Full disclosure, I did not do this at 3 o'clock in the morning. I made the drive shortly after 1 o'clock in the afternoon. I'm starting my uh, time right now. See how long this takes. You'll remember that Gary Allen Stroop testified that he saw Justin Chapman near the scene of the fire shortly before he saw the fire itself. He was a key prosecution witness. We went to Stroop's stoop in episode three. We found out that it would have been very difficult, and that's being generous, for Stroop to have identified anyone at that distance. Wow. Okay. There's no way. There's no way. Sorry. (laughs) But let's assume that Stroop got it right. After crossing over two sets of railroad tracks, remember, this is Bremen, I found what seemed to be the most logical place to park. Logical, that is, if I wanted to set the fire on Sharp Street and then be seen leaving the area from a porch on Marchman Street. Stroop Stoop. Eight minutes, 25 seconds in. Let's go. I take the two-block walk up to where the duplex at 113 Sharp Street used to be. It's now just a vacant lot. I'm walking up right up to where the house would be. Dogs are behind the fence, thank goodness. I take time to simulate the act of arson. I'm going to give myself a little bit of time. Like I'm starting a fire. I dump an imaginary gas can on a door that's no longer here. Getting a gas can, pouring some gas. Doing it very quickly. Lighting the match. Turning around. Walking back. Obviously, anyone starting a fire wouldn't be hanging around very long. Those dogs are not behind a fence, but I'm hopefully... They'll stay in their yards. Headed back to my car. Fire should be started right now if this is the way it happened. 13 minutes, 40 seconds in. If Stroop's testimony was right, he wouldn't have driven right up here and parked close to his house because Stroop saw him walking away 
from where the fire started, crossing the street. Marchman Street is just one street over. I'm going to cross the street back to my car. 15 minutes, 50 seconds in. I'm back to my car. It's time to get back to the used house. Trailer. Let's get going. I encountered very little traffic in either direction, either driving to Chapman's house or then driving back to the used trailer, just as it would have been at 3 o'clock in the morning. My one concern was whether I'd get caught at a rail crossing. And guess what? 18 minutes, 20 seconds. Uh-oh. I got a train. Of course. Looks like a long train. In Bremen, you deal with trains. I wait almost three minutes on the nose for the train to pass, then take off again on the way to the used trailer. Get out of the car. Stop. After subtracting the three minutes I waited for the train to pass, I determined the trip there and back took 25 minutes. So, there's your answer. Did Chapman have enough time to commit the crime? Yes, he did. Still doesn't prove that he did it, but it's at least physically possible that he did. This would mean the alibi testimony from his family was either wrong or fabricated. Also, if he had left the trailer as late as 2.45 a.m., he still would have had time to set the fire around 3 a.m. You may also remember that two people testified that Chapman told them that he set the fire. The most important, of course, was Joe White, the jailhouse snitch. Even though White's testimony has been called into question, He did provide details about Chapman and members of his family that could have only come from someone who had talked with Chapman. White also confirmed, for police, what they believed to be the motive for the crime, that Chapman was angry at his landlord and burned the house because she had asked him to find another place to live. Here's White on the witness stand at trial. He never told me exactly how he started firing other than, yes, he said that he did. Did he tell you why? He said he'd had several arguments with the landlord and he'd gotten even with that landlord because he'd burnt the house down. And one moment in White's testimony was chilling. We had uh, several conversations and during one of the conversations he told me that he did set the fire that killed the lady. At one point he also said that he uh, felt like he'd done her a favor. He said he felt like he'd done her a favor. If you've read our profile of Alice Jackson on AJCBreakdown.com, you'll know this was a cold-hearted thing to say. This is strictly a guess, but it doesn't seem like the sort of thing that White, who didn't know Miss Alice, would just make up, does it? Miss Alice was elderly, alone, and afraid. At 79 years old, she spent her days marooned in her apartment, calling police and her pastor at least once a day to make sure things were okay. She was really afraid of storms and of the prospect that someone would try to commit her to a mental institution. She had at least a mild intellectual disability. She was also kind-hearted and sweet-natured. Joe White's motives have been questioned because he was facing child molestation charges. He was hoping prosecutors would look favorably on his case if he offered helpful testimony against Chapman. He also said that a fellow jail inmate, William Liner, would corroborate his story that Chapman had admitted setting the fire. 
but Liner has told me that he never heard Chapman make such an admission. All that seems to make White a shaky witness, but that still doesn't mean his testimony about Chapman's confession wasn't true. And although a lot of seasoned defense attorneys will roll their eyes when they hear me say this, I'm going to say it anyway. I can't for the life of me comprehend how someone would make up testimony that would send an innocent person to prison for life. And I'm sure the jury in the Chapman case must have been thinking the same thing. Sure, White might have been trying to make a deal to get out from under his child molestation case, but by the time of Chapman's trial, White had been acquitted of those charges. So that was not a motive for him to lie on the stand. Yes, White did indeed collect a $5,000 reward three weeks after the trial for helping get Chapman convicted. But White, while on the witness stand, denied knowing anything about that potential windfall. And the prosecutor, Charles Rooks, presented another witness who appeared to corroborate White's story about Chapman's admission. Of course, even that witness had problems. Dorman Dean Chandler was a paranoid schizophrenic with bipolar disorder. He said in a recorded interview with police that he heard Chapman confess to setting the fire. But when Chandler got to court, Chandler said he never heard Chapman make any such admission. So, the prosecutor played the tape of the previous police interview in which Chandler said just the opposite. If you're on the jury, which of these statements would you believe? Obviously, the Chapman jury believed the first one. Prosecutor Charles Rooks capitalized on these confession witnesses during his closing argument. We've got two strong confessions that he gave, one that you just heard on tape, another one I'm reading you, where he has testified in court. Nobody's promised anything. Nobody went to them to get, it, to, to get the testimony. Nobody offered them a deal. There wasn't any deal. There wasn't any money paid. There wasn't any reduction of sentence. There wasn't any coercion. They independently told the same story because it came out of the defendant's mouth. That's direct evidence of his guilt. At trial, the prosecutor also presented the testimony of 12-year-old Chris Guyton. Chris said Chapman's son had come to him crying before the fire, saying Daddy's going to burn the house down. Finally, there's Stephen Hughes, Justin Chapman's longtime friend who told police that Chapman might have done it. He said there was a gas can sitting on some coolers outside Chapman's house before the fire. That gas can was gone later, Hughes told the cops. Curiously, though, Hughes was never called to the stand. Here's what he told police. Like I said, he might have did. You know, he might, he might have been pissed off because he was getting convicted, you know. But I don't know for sure. So according to this set of facts, Chapman had the means, the motive, and the opportunity to commit the crime that killed Alice Jackson. You also have witnesses saying they heard Chapman admit to doing it. This is why I keep telling you that I don't know whether he is guilty or not guilty. So what does Justin Chapman say? Remember that I told you his lawyers won't let him talk to me while their bid for a new trial was pending? I've also told you that Chapman didn't testify at his own trial. But in fact, he finally did have his day in court, so to speak, at the end of 2013. Thank you, Your Honor. Uh, we're going to call Mr. Chapman next. Do you hear those chains? They're shackled to Chapman's legs as he walks to the witness stand. Will you be able to safely get into the witness seat? Yes, sir. Okay. Right, Mr. Chapman, will you state the full name of the record, please? Uh, Justin Wayne Chapman. All right, will you raise your right hand, sir? 
Uh, do you swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth today, so help you God? I promise. Chapman had now been in prison for more than six years. He was testifying in December 2013 in a habeas corpus hearing. Those are the hearings prisoners get to try to win a new trial. Chapman is being questioned by John Raines, one of his new lawyers. Chapman starts out by describing his relationship with Alice Jackson, his neighbor who died in the fire. She was good to us. Uh, she tried to help us out in any way she could. I would take her to the doctor visits. She was a good woman, and we had a good relationship. She let us use her phone because we didn't have one, so she would let us use her phone, and she was a real nice woman. Chapman recounted how he drove up to his house with three of his kids in the car at about 5 o'clock in the morning. There, he found the duplex burned to the ground and firefighters on the scene. He also learned that Ms. Alice was dead. How'd that make you feel? Very, very bad. Why did you feel that? Because I cared for her. Uh, I loved her. Uh, she treated me at that time better than my own mother did. Uh, she did things for me that my mother didn't do for me. Um, so I respected her. She was a good woman. Chapman then confirmed his landlord wanted him to move out of the duplex. She had called my wife. They never made it clear to me, but uh, she did call my wife and tell, tell my wife that we need to be looking for a place. We didn't have to leave then, but we need to be looking for a place because they knew that I couldn't, couldn't move on $80. They was getting the majority of my money. Chapman then described the fight that occurred outside his duplex just a few hours before the fire. As you'll remember, an angry and drunken William Paul Chives showed up at Chapman's front door and accused Chapman of calling his aunt a red-headed crack whore. Then, standing before Chapman, Chives called his brother and told him they needed to show Chapman what happens to people who mess with their family. This angered Chapman, so he went inside and got his pistol. I come back out. He was gone. I wouldn't let it go. I followed him in the street. I pointed the pistol at him. He come back. I walked back into my yard, and he kept on walking back into my yard. And I thought, this dude's an idiot. So I began to beat him with the pistol. Chives, now on the ground, finally said he'd had enough. Chapman helped him up and let him go back to his house. Police soon arrived and arrested Chives for being drunk and disorderly. They booked him into jail. EMTs arrived at the scene and treated Austin, one of Chapman's young sons. He was having a panic attack. After the EMTs left, the terrified child said he wanted to get away from the house. And he began to tell me he didn't want to stay there no more that night because he was scared. So I grabbed a diaper bag with diaper bottles and uh, the necessities. I grabbed a PlayStation so they could play their games and uh, some blankets and, and left and went to the Hughes residence. Okay. That would be Brandy and Stephen Hughes' trailer. Brandy told police a day after the fire that she had looked at the clock when they left the duplex and it was 2 o'clock in the morning. Chapman then described what happened when they got to the used trailer. Well, uh, we, got, we got out. Um, we began to shoot some fireworks. Um, I heard Brandy scream. I went in to look at her. She'd been stung by a bee. I put some uh, Copenhagen on, on her bee sting to draw out the, the uh, poison. Christy fixed some raviolis, gave kids a bath. For those of you who don't know, Copenhagen is chewing tobacco, and tobacco has long been used to treat bee stings, in case you were wondering. Even though it was after 2 a.m., the kids were awake because of the excitement of the fight. So Chapman said he tried to entertain them with a PlayStation game. We all took turns. We was playing a game 24, and uh, one person would die, and we'd pass the controller. 
and the other person would play until they died, and it went back and forth like that for a while. Then Chapman admitted he and his buddy Stephen Hughes went outside and thought about committing a crime. Keep in mind, at that time, Chapman was living off $218 a week in disability payments and was also addicted to methamphetamine. Mind you, that does not justify what he was thinking of doing. It at least might help explain it. Uh, there was a house across the street from the Hughes residence that had a barn in it. Uh, Stephen informed me that they was uh, valuable tools and uh, a four-wheeler in there. Uh, we did walk across the street. We was going to break into it, and uh, a car showed up. It spooked me, and I never broke into it. We never broke into it. I know. That's an awful way to have to account for your whereabouts when your duplex burns down in a fire that kills your elderly neighbor. And don't forget, police got the first 911 call about the fire at 3.19 a.m., little more than an hour after Chapman arrived at the used trailer. At the hearing, Chapman's lawyer, Raines, finally gets to the heart of the matter. Were you at the Hughes house continuously between the time you arrived and approximately 4.45 or 5 in the morning? Yes, sir. At some point early that morning, June 20th, you left the Hughes house? Yes, sir, I did. Can you explain to the court why you left? Um, my wife got mad at me because uh, I wanted to... Uh, Chloe always uh, slept with me, so I wanted to lay down on the couch with Chloe. She got mad, and we began to argue. So instead of arguing in somebody else's house, uh, I decided to take uh, Chloe... Anthony and Austin, and I left to go back home. And I would go back the next day and get them, or the next morning and get them. So you have this fight with Christy, and you put three of your kids in your car, and you head back to Sharp Street? Yes, sir. Ocean breeze, tropical beach. An air freshener can make your car smell like paradise. A drive to Daytona Beach will actually get you there. Beach on. Plan your trip today at DaytonaBeach.com. Wyndham Hotels and Resorts makes travel possible for all. Whether it's the long haulers looking for a great cup of coffee, a roomier rest for the on-a-wim road trippers, or a place to make summer memories with the whole family. No matter who you are, where you're going, or why, with 24 trusted brands to choose from like La Quinta, Days Inn, and Super 8, your Wyndham is waiting. Get the lowest price at WyndhamHotels.com. Restrictions apply. Visit website for more details. Let me remind you that Brandy Hughes was called as a witness in Chapman's trial. She said pretty much the same thing on the stand about what happened after everyone got to her trailer that night. And she was not someone who cared much for Chapman at that time. In her police interviews, Brandy said she hardly knew Chapman and didn't like the way he was treating Christy. I recently talked with Brandy. While she would not sit down for a recorded interview she did give the same account of what she said happened during those early morning hours. After everyone arrived at the trailer, they shot off fireworks. Christy took a shower and gave kids a bath. They made up beds, during which Brandy got stung by a wasp. Eventually, Brandy said, she went to bed, although she didn't know exactly when. But she said Justin had not driven off before she went to bed. Brandy said she initially dozed off but was briefly awakened when Stephen got into bed. She said she dozed off again, only to be awakened again when she heard Justin and Christy arguing. She said she then heard Justin leave with his kids. When I asked Brandy if she thought Chapman had set the fire, she said she didn't know. 
but she also said she has never been able to see how he had the time to do it, given all that was happening after they got to her trailer that night. As for Stephen Hughes, I've been unable to track him down. I do know he was recently housed at the Harrelson County Jail for a probation violation. I also know he and Brandy have parted ways. Okay, back to the habeas hearing. Here's John Raines questioning Chapman again. Can you tell what happened when you got back to Sharp Street? Uh, before I got to Sharp Street, I seen lights and hoses. When I turned on Sharp Street, when I come down the road, I began to see fire trucks. I didn't know who really it was at first until I got close to my house. And then when I got close to it, I began to see that they was in front of my residence. After finding out that Miss Alice was dead, Chapman said he then realized all that he'd lost in the fire. Everything. Antiques my grandmother gave me, card collection that I was going to pass on to my children that had uh, Michael Jordan cards, uh, Mark McGuire's, Barry Sanders, Magic Johnson's, autographed baseballs. I lost everything. I lost my granddaddy's stuff. Um, I had nothing. Nothing. The only clothes I had, the only clothes we had, were the clothes on our body. Chapman acknowledged that after he was charged with Alice Jackson's murder and put in the Harrelson County Jail, Joe White was in the same cell block. Chapman also said they attended prayer sessions together. Did you ever tell anybody in that cell block that you killed your neighbor, Miss Jackson? Yes, sir. Chapman then said William Paul Chives, yeah, the man he pistol whipped before the fire, was also in the county jail, and they had a very unusual conversation. Did you and Mr. Chives ever talk about the fire at 113 Sharp Street? Yes, we did. The way the conversation happened was is um, he had seen what was happening in the worship services, and uh, he went to medical and he come back crying and asked me to pray for him. So I prayed for him, and um, we were sitting down after I prayed for him, and uh, was sitting on top of the table, and I looked at him and I said, I'm not such a bad guy after all, am I? And he shook his head no. I said, uh, and if you would have known me prior to this, you doing this would have never happened, would it? And he shook his head no. I said, you know who burned my house down, don't you? And he shook his head yes, and I asked him who. And he got up and walked off. He didn't tell you? No, sir. State Attorney Matthew Crowder, when cross-examining Chapman, asked fewer than three dozen questions. And it appeared that he did nothing at all to discredit Chapman. After he was finished, Raines asked Chapman one final question. Uh, Mr. Chapman, did you start the fire at 113 Sharp Street? No, sir. I don't have further questions. No. You might go down. Telling Chapman he could step down from the witness stand was the person presiding over the hearing, Superior Court Judge Frederick Mullis. The hearing had to be held in the Telfair County seat of McRae because Chapman was incarcerated at Telfair State Prison. Mullis grew up 20 miles down the road in Eastman. His father, a successful insurance salesman, always said he wanted to be a lawyer. Mullis also admired the man who lived right across the street. He was not only Mullis's Cub Scout leader, he was a lawyer who would become president of the State Bar of Georgia. With those two major influences, Mullis chose the law. After spending more than a decade as a small-town lawyer, he became a local prosecutor. In 1996, he became a judge for the sprawling six-county Oconee Circuit. The circuit includes five state prisons, which means Mullis and his colleagues hear a lot, and I mean a lot, of habeas corpus petitions. Most of them are filed by inmates pro se, meaning the inmates are representing themselves without a lawyer. 
It's rare for Mullis to grant an inmate a new trial, but Chapman's case, brought by experienced lawyers and investigated to the hilt, was different. If Chapman's original lawyers were unprepared, his new defense team was the Boy Scouts of America. They'd added Frank Hogue, an experienced criminal defense attorney from Macon who knew his way around the courthouses of South Georgia. And the entire team of high-priced, big-city lawyers moved, en masse, to a hotel in rural Georgia, 35 miles from McRae. They set up one suite there with computers and a printer so they could write up court motions on the fly. The law firm's IT guy even outfitted the courtroom with updated electronics, computers, audio, and video tools so the team could present its case to the court. And remember, they were doing all of this for free. We brought our whole team down there. Uh, we set up shop in a La Quinta right off of I-16 uh, outside of Dublin, Georgia, and we brought the whole kit. Uh, we had a war room set up in the hotel. We had uh, you know, all of our equipment and files and records. We had two paralegals with us, one of our IT guys, uh, and we set up in the courtroom uh, just like we would do uh, for a, a wealthy individual or a corporate client who would hire us in a civil case. Uh, we were ready to go uh, for Justin's habeas hearing. They'd now been working on the case for two years. Over Thanksgiving weekend in New Orleans, Mike Kaplan had run through a mock argument of the case before members of his family. His wife, who's an attorney, his father, who's also an attorney, and his brother, a federal prosecutor. As the hearing approached, the anticipation had become palpable. We had spent a lot of time and had done a lot of uh, research and investigation and, and developed a great team to assist us. And throughout that process, became more and more convinced of Justin's innocence and the need to exonerate him from this wrongful conviction. And so there was a, an excitement in the air about the opportunity to expose the truth about what happened on that day in June of 2006 and also of the defects in Justin's trial and the failures of the justice system in this case. We felt blessed by the opportunity to do that. They called 11 witnesses, including Gary Allen Stroop's sister, Peggy Lewis, Finn Little, the lawyer who handled Chapman's failed appeal, Jan Hankins, the public defender who lost the case at trial, and Richard Ratcliffe, the retired FBI polygraph expert. Another retired FBI agent, John and Sonia, also took the stand. He testified that he had interviewed William Paul Chives, the man Chapman pistol-whipped before the fire. Like I've said, Chives was arrested and jailed after that fight. At Justin Chapman's trial, Chives testified that he had nothing to do with the fire that killed Alice Jackson. He also testified that once at the jail that night, he made no phone calls. Here's what he said from the witness stand. No, I ain't called nobody from the jail. They wouldn't allow me a phone call until I got to talk to the fire investigators. But a jailer at the Harrelson County Jail remembers it differently. Jessica McCrary has said in a sworn statement that she was on duty after Chives was booked in the night of the fire. Chives used the booking telephone to make at least one call, McCrary said. She said she remembered because Chives was raising Kane on the phone and she had to tell him to keep it down because he was cussing and making so much noise. At Chapman's trial, his public defender, Jan Hankins, tried to convince jurors that Chives, or members of his clan, may have had a hand in the fire. So, who did Chives call when he was raising Kane on that jail phone? Let me remind you what we told you about Chives in Episode 1. And it's important. Just a few weeks before the fire that killed Alice Jackson, 
Chives accompanied a relative who set fire to a house in Carroll County, about 10 miles from Bremen. Why? Chives' relative wanted to exact revenge on a guy who beat up a former girlfriend. Chives testified at Chapman's trial that he took off when he realized that his relative was planning to set fire to the guy's house. He said he wanted no part of setting a fire. In Sonia, the retired FBI agent working for Chapman's new legal team tracked Chives down years after Chapman's trial. According to Insonia, Chives admitted that he did indeed help his relative set the fire in Carroll County by pouring gasoline around the house. In an interview, Insonia said this is the type of information that should have been put before Chapman's jury. McCrary, she, I mean, she distinctly remembers Chives that night. He was out of his mind, and she let him use the phone. So he did have access to a phone. So that's something that should have been presented to the jury. You know, like, wait a minute, there's an alternative. Right. You know, could this other guy have done it? I mean, he certainly has the motivation. He got his ass beat, got walked upside the head. He made the threat. Everyone agrees that he called his brother up. This guy was part of a gang. And the month before, you know, he was involved in an identical fire. I've tried to speak with Chives, but with no luck. I at least know where he is. For months. He's been locked up at the Harrelson County Jail on charges he failed to register as a sex offender. This stems from a statutory rape conviction against Chives more than a decade ago. At the close of Chapman's habeas hearing before Judge Mullis, the state's attorney, Matthew Crowder, called no witnesses, not even trial prosecutor Charles Rooks. This was peculiar because Rooks was being accused of failing to turn over important evidence to the defense. Rooks, as I've told you, will not sit for an interview. But in an email, he expressed great frustration at not being called to testify at this hearing. Was this another breakdown in the Chapman case, this time to the disadvantage of the prosecution? Or was this some grand strategy? The Attorney General's spokeswoman, Lauren Kane, refused to explain why this happened. She told me, and I quote, The questions you have posed relate to legal strategy and we do not discuss legal strategy. The transcript of the three-day hearing suggests that it was a home run for Chapman's defense team. They got in all the evidence they wanted, and the state appeared to offer little resistance. The question seemed now to be how long it would take Judge Mullis to order a new trial for Chapman. It took three and a half months. On March 20, 2014, Mullis issued a 20-page order. To read a copy of it, please go to ajcbreakdown.com. Here are the highlights. First, the prosecution failed to turn over important evidence that would have helped Chapman's defense. This included a videotaped interview with jailhouse snitch Joe White. Mullis also said that Finn Little, who handled Chapman's appeal, might have won Chapman a new trial years ago had he done his job properly. Here's John Raines. We were excited uh, and relieved and uh, we wanted to get that news to Justin as quickly as we could. Uh, and so we got in touch with his parents to tell them what the judge had done, and we sent a copy of the letter from the judge to Justin, and then we went down to Telfair uh, State Prison and met with Justin to give him the news in person. Mike Kaplan describes that meeting. It was a great meeting. Um, Justin was extremely elated. Uh, he was also very relieved. I think a little overwhelmed by the news since he had lost some confidence in our justice system. And so it was a um, truly special moment to deliver that news. 
The question now, Rain said, was how long would it take to get Chapman out of prison? This was in the spring of 2014. Justin's oldest child graduated from high school in May of 2014. And one of the things that I remember distinctly from that meeting is the hope that Justin felt that he might get out of prison uh, to be there for that important event uh, for his family. But that wasn't going to happen, not by a long shot. The state was not about to let Chapman go. Next on Breakdown, the Chapman case goes back to the Georgia Supreme Court. In 2012, the court rejected Chapman's appeal. What would happen this time? Mr. Chief Justice, may it please the court, I'm Paula Smith here today on behalf of the warden, urging this court to reverse the grant of habeas corpus relief and reinstating Mr. Chapman's murder conviction and life sentence from Harrelson County. Do you want to know more about this podcast? Go to ajcbreakdown.com for a timeline, photos of the cast of characters, court documents, and bonus audio and video. Breakdown is a production of the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. The story is reported and told by Bill Rankin, produced by Richard Hallix. The music for Breakdown was composed and performed by Bo Emerson. Audio production by Chris Basta of CO3 Sound Atlanta. Story consultant Susanna Capilouto. Special thanks to Billy Thurman, Bert Roten, Eric Netherton, and Brian Anderson. Ocean breeze, tropical beach, pina colada. You can buy an air freshener to make your car smell like you're in an oceanside paradise. Or, better yet, you can point your car toward Daytona Beach and come experience the real thing. Visit DaytonaBeach.com to discover all there is to see, do, and enjoy along the world's most famous beach. Daytona Beach, Florida. Beach on. The AJC's trusted veteran political voices, Greg Bluestein, Patricia Murphy, Tia Mitchell, and Bill Nygut are the essential source for Georgia politics. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution's Politically Georgia. Sign up for the newsletter, download the podcast, subscribe to the AJC.